Welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, a podcast for fans of the guests who appear on this show, as well as fans of music in general, and a podcast for musicians, singers, songwriters, artists, entertainers who want to learn more to help them grow in what they're doing. I'm your host, Bruce Wozniak from Now Hear This Incorporated. Check out www.nowhearthis.biz. Be sure to sign up for the email newsletter there, which is quick and easy. All that's required is an email address. We are coming to you from Crystal Blue Sound Studios near Tampa, Florida. Check them out on the web at www.cbpro, as in Crystal Blue Productions, cbpro.net. Be sure you are subscribing to this podcast and telling your friends to do so as well. We are thrilled to be on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and SoundCloud. Lots of great guests on Now You Hear This Entertainment, or as I've taken to calling it, NHTE. Joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from New York City, my guest plays 11 different instruments, has released four CDs, and has played with everyone from Grammy Award winner Nile Rodgers to Bo Diddley, Chuck Berry, The Drifters, and Ben Vereen, among many, many others. He has a studio where he gives bass instruction and voice lessons, and of course does recording and producing there. You've been hearing one of his songs called Wes Is More. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show Nelson Montana. Hello, Bruce. Nice to be here. Nelson, thanks so much for doing the show today. Sure. So the usual drill is to get things started by talking about the song that was playing during the intro. I already told you leading up to today's interview that I like it, uh, but tell the <laughs> listeners about that song, Wes Is More. Um, yeah, well, the, uh, the title of that song actually comes from a little play on words about Wes Montgomery, who is, um, many people might know, wonderful, one of the great jazz guitarists. Yeah. And he used to play in a style where he would uh, employ octaves, which is um, two of the same note and octave apart. And I came up with this little melody that I really liked. It sort of reminded me of uh, Wes. Of course, uh, Wes is more, and that is <laughs> uh, really, uh, again, one of the greats. But, um, yeah, I, uh, that's one of the tracks from the jazz CD where I'm, uh, I'm, I'm playing all the parts. And um, you know, it's a simple blues little melody and uh, had some fun with it. And uh, it came out pretty good. So you're mentioning Wes Montgomery because I, it, the temptation is to always ask songwriters about the the story behind the song you know was that a real mm-hmm. story did it just something you imagined but when it doesn't have any lyrics you can say well it was inspired by west montgomery but right. how much more can there be when you're writing something that's not going to have any lyrics that uh is influenced by something in this case you know inspiration beyond just west montgomery yeah, I think when writing instrumental music, you're inspired not necessarily by a story. It really is more than sounds, because with instrumental music, uh, it is the sounds that have to sort of create the imagery in your mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you, that, that's your storytelling right there. It's, it's just the sound of the music. So uh, when I do an instrumental piece, I just, I'm often thinking about, it could be anything from um, a visual, I'm looking at a sunset over you know, an ocean, and that creates a sound, uh, and I want to capture that sound. Uh, in this case, um, as mentioned, it was just I utilized one of the things that Wes would do, and for that reason, I just made it a little cute play on words. But other than that, um, you just never really know where inspiration is going to come from. You just uh, and, and sometimes with instrumental music, you, you just really want a title. 
And you just come up with something that uh, just seems to fit. But I wonder, in your opinion, is it, is it fair to say that it's more difficult to write an instrumental because you do have to be so persuasive, if, if you will, with yeah. the music? Yeah, um, I don't know if it's a um, more or less thing. I think that uh, you write what you hear, and I think if uh, many musicians... They may have something to say in regard to just music. I mean, most jazz, for example, does not have lyrics. It's about sure. the music. Sure. Uh, it's about the feel. Um, but uh, And I was actually more into instrumental music when I was younger because I think I was more into displaying my musical prowess, so to speak. I see. But uh, as I got older, I really uh, started to appreciate the, um, the beauty and the brevity of pop music. Hmm. And having that, making that statement in three minutes and um, being a writer, uh, it just made sense to um, convey lyrics where I could tell my story more directly because obviously music with lyrics seems to, uh, it will reach more people. Instrumental right. music requires a more intense listening and um, it has to be in a style of music that speaks to you. So right. uh, I think every, every artist has to do what they feel they can convey their message best. Yeah, and dare I say, at, at, at the risk of, of offending songs with lyrics, uh, you know, it, it almost seems like it, you have to be a more sophisticated listener to listen to instrumental music because there is some level of interpretation involved, as opposed to the job's already been done for you because here are the lyrics I'm telling you. Right, right. I, I think that's very true. But um, I'll play devil's advocate on that one, where I think a lot, a, lot of, a lot of musicians think that because music is instrumental, it is somehow superior. Mm. And uh, that isn't necessarily the case. I mean, there's good music and bad music all over. But uh, it's funny. It's, um, it's one of the reasons why I feel that music videos have actually distracted from, ah. the, musical, from the musical experience. Yeah. Um, because prior to uh, MTV, which was, I don't know, 1980 or somewhere around there, um, music created uh, imagery in your mind, and that was a very powerful thing. And uh, since music videos, people tend to want that visual, which I feel actually distracts somewhat from the music. But uh, I'm very old school in that. <laughs> well, but you know, I, I, I made this point on the show a couple weeks ago, the fact that when Cena Earhart was my guest back on episode 61, she talked about a music video of hers, and she said that when it came to planning that video, storyboarding it, she took a step back and said, well, what do I like? What catches my attention when I watch a music video? And she said, in fact, there's an Adele video that really has very little to it visually. And she mm -hmm. said, to me, that was more appealing, that it was very bare bones and more about the voice and about the song than about right. all these fancy effects and locations right. and lighting and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's actually a smart move on the artist's part to keep the uh, videos more bare. I mean, it, it's it's natural to want to see something. Sure. Um, sometimes if I'm looking at a, a YouTube clip where there's no video, I'm still staring at the screen. Yeah, <laughs> waiting <laughs> for just, it to do something. <laughs> yeah, you just, you just naturally, uh, you know, we tend, the visual is, is the strongest uh, sense. But um, I, I do a lot of YouTube videos where I'll make um, a composite of images, Mm -hmm. To sort of keep mm -hmm. the listener uh, engaged. But I've found that very often that imagery, uh, again, it detracts from the music. I, I don't mm -hmm. want it. So I think the idea of keeping, uh, I'm not sure which Adele video um, she was referring to, but it, it makes sense. You don't want it to be 
so spectacular that you miss the song. But I think in some cases, people are relying on that visual because maybe songs and all that good. <laughs> a little bit of hand-holding. <laughs> well, exactly. we, were, we were talking about Wes is More, which is off of your Jazz Unstandards CD, and, and that, mm-hmm. that CD has several notable jazz sidemen on it. Tell yeah. the listeners about who those folks are. Um, well, um, I'm playing, uh, what am I playing on that album? I'm playing, uh, bass mainly, and, uh, I'm also playing drums, which just seems, might seem a little odd that I'd be playing bass and drums at the same time. <laughs> and I play some piano and I play, um, guitar. I have Dave Jensen, who is a terrific New Yorker saxophonist. Um, he's played with the Groove Collective. He's, um, his album was up for a Grammy. Wow. Uh, Mark Berman, who's also one of these guys, who's just always in demand, a great pianist. And Alex Norris, who um, is a world-class trumpeter, he um, plays with the uh, Village Vanguard, um, uh, Thad Jones, Mel Lewis band. Uh, and he's also, I believe he's on the road now with Ron Carter. Mm. Ron Carter has a uh, big band. He's played with Stevie Winwood. Um, he's just, again, just a top, top-notch guy. Wow. And um, luckily enough, he's also my neighbor. <laughs> so that really uh, worked out very well. Come on, Alice, play, play on the track and we'll have pizza. <laughs> but I was very, very fortunate with that. I, um, I took a very different approach with that album. It was a bit of an experiment in that most people think that jazz is um, an interaction between the players, and it is. But this is an album that I had to record more like um, a pop band. I had to do everything individually. At no time were the members of the band in the room mm. uh, to playing at the same time. So um, it was interesting in that I would maybe I would lay down a bass part and Alex would come in and he would play a solo, a wonderful solo to the bass part. And then we would be adding the other instruments one at a time and I did the drums last. And as a drummer, wow. I, would, I would interact to some of the rhythms being played. Ah. And you put it all together and it sounds like a band feeding off of each other, but it was actually done uh, in individual tracks. And the, the, the title, The Jazz Unstandards? <laughs> well, it was an unstandard way of uh, making the record, so that was sort okay. of an inside joke to okay. myself. Yeah, I like that. But, uh, but a lot of the songs were standards. They're uh, mostly covers. I think I have two originals on that. But, um, yeah, just taking standard uh, jazz tunes and just trying to turn them upside down a little bit, do them a little bit differently, and uh, just bring a little bit of a fresh face to it. On the three CDs that you had released before Jazz on, on Standards, wow, to talk about solo albums, you, you performed all the parts, meaning playing all the instruments, doing all the lead and background vocals. What was your reason for taking that approach for those three releases? Or, or maybe I should say, why did you finally go away from that for your fourth CD? Well, it's interesting. If you had asked me 30 years ago what I'd like to do in my later years, um, I'd probably say um, recording and painting. Painting was actually my first love. And um, but the idea of having a studio, especially in a Manhattan apartment, just wasn't particularly feasible. And we had no idea that the recording capabilities would be what we have today. So uh, that was the, the, the impetus to really start taking advantage of recording. And um, I, I think as an artist, you, you want to have something to say. I mean, I, I, I do writing as well. That exists forever, whether it's in a magazine or whether it's online somewhere. But uh, with songwriting, uh, you have to create it. You have to put it together and um, you know, have you know, have those lyrics and have that music. And um, it's very satisfying to know that um, you have something to show for it. This is what 
I was thinking, this is what I was seeing. But um, the purpose of using, playing all the instruments, um, it didn't start out that way. I originally started using the best players I could find. Hmm. Um, and that's kind of the uh, Steely Dan approach, if you're familiar with that. <laughs> you know, they'll write us, who's the best, we'll get 10 drummers in there and we'll use the best drum track. Um, and that is, not to disparage Steely Dan, they're wonderful, but uh, it's a little cold for me. Mm -hmm. um, I felt that by playing all the parts myself, it became more um, my vision. Not that I was necessarily a better guitarist or pianist than someone else, but it was more what I was hearing in my head. I see. And I, I realized that also sometimes limitations are good. And that um, the fact that I'm not Tatum on piano forces me to play simply. And by forcing me to play simply, I have to think in terms of being melodic and tuneful and coming up with something that's going to register. And that, in many ways, is a lot more fun than just showing you some virtuosity. Hmm. And uh, limitations are also a spur of the creative process because um, the Sgt. Pepper was recorded on two four-track uh, tape records. Now, if back then they had 24 track or 64 track and all the patches and all the sequences. Um, you know, it may not have been as creative an album. They were forced to find ways around problems. And I like that. And then eventually it became more of a, um, just sort of a showcase of my ability. But with the jazz CD, with jazz on standards, um, I don't play any horns. I play all the rhythm section instruments, but um, I, I'm not going to play trumpet like Alex Morris. <laughs> so, uh, so I had some side come in on that. And that was love. Now, is there new material being done toward a next CD, a fifth CD? You know, I'm always... Um, it's funny where inspiration comes from. I'm always thinking in terms of um, recording, and, and I, you never know where the ideas come from, but uh, I'm one of these people who... Um, I also need a reason. To, I mean, I could write a song right now. Somebody called me up and said, Nelson, we need a song, here's $1,000. I'll write you a song. Uh, and some people think that, well, that's sort of generic and that's sort of uh, formulaic. It's not really inspirational. But the truth is, if you're a creative person, you're going to find creativity in whatever you do. If you're commissioned to direct a toilet paper commercial and you're a creative person, you're going to make that a really good toilet paper commercial. So I'm always thinking in terms of uh, creating new things. I just never really know what that's going to be. Yeah, but I, I admire your your outlook on some of these things. Is you know specifically when you talked about playing the songs and, and it's you know your own interpretation. Yes, like you said, you could find a better guitar player and someone can call you and say this is what we need. You're just kind of being in the moment, really. And and you know if you hand off a song to someone because they're a better guitar player and you try to tell them this is what my vision is, they may come close, but it's still not going to be your vision. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly what's happened. And, um, yeah, you get to a point where you have to, um, it's the old chestnut of believing in yourself. You have to believe, I, I could do something here. I can get something done. It may not be, it doesn't have to be the greatest thing in the world. It's, um, I, I tell young performers this all the time. Don't try, don't let the quest for perfection be the enemy of the good. Let, uh, you have to go out there and even if it's 80%, 80% has got to be good. But if you're always striving for perfection, you just wind up questioning yourself and, and overthinking it. I'll pass along a little story. It's actually um, something I read in a book called Art and Fear, where they did an experiment uh, with an art class. 
not sculptors. They had uh, 50 students and they told 25 of them, we want you to create um, a piece of sculpture daily, something that would be sellable, just sort of trinkety stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, you just have to complete it by the end of the day. You know? So do your best. And then to the other 25, they said, make your masterpiece. You've got two weeks to make one piece as good as you can make it. Mm-hmm. And what they did at the end of the experiment is they took the 25 students' works that had to do a, a piece a day. And they took the 25 students who had to do one piece in two weeks. And they mixed them all together. And they didn't know who did what. And they judged them just on the end result. Wow. And it turns out that nine of the ten best were all from the group that had to do one a day. Wow. And I think that shows two things. I think that shows if you've got talent, you've got talent, and you can get it done. And secondly, sometimes overthinking something will just uh, junk it up. When you have to get something done, you do another very quick story. There was an artist called Norm Saunders who did a lot of these pulp um, paintings in the 50s, like Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. I don't uh-huh, know if you've ever seen uh-huh. that picture, stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, he did the Mars Attacks cards, uh, all this crazy stuff. And he was really a, very, a wonderful artist, but he was doing what he considered junk. Hmm. And uh, finally, um, later in his life, when he wasn't really working much, he decided he was just going to paint what he wanted to paint. And I checked out some of his work, and it was really dull. Hmm. In other words, when he was told what to do, his talent came through. But left to his, you know, his own device, so to speak, uh, he, um, he just he really didn't, he was still a wonderful painter, but he didn't really have a great idea. So that's another example of sometimes you really need to um, work with other people in part, and sometimes you just need to work quickly because it has an energy about it. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I like that. Yeah, it's like you said before about getting a phone call from someone that says, look, we need a song tomorrow, and these are the parameters. Ultimately, you're, you're, you're still kind of caught in that quagmire between, well, this is my interpretation of what their interpretation of this needs to be. Yeah. But yeah. at the end of the day, look, you're on the deadline. If the client's happy, the job is done, and you move on. And, and maybe, yeah. maybe you do go and do one of your own and say, okay, I'm going to crit- critique myself a little more heavily now, but I had the talent. I got done what they needed. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's certainly it. And it's funny, I think that, um, just going jumping off of the example that um, I mentioned before, even if I were doing the most rote thing, I think I'd want to give it a little bit, I want to bring something to the table. As an artist, I want to bring something, I want to make it good. Um, at the same time, if somebody said, you know, yeah, do a solo album, whatever you want, I am thinking in terms of it being commercially accessible. You know, you want to reach people. John Lennon had a great quote. He goes, if you want to be a pure artist, paint a picture and put it in the closet. <laughs> you, know? in other words, you have to reach people. That, that's the whole point. Art and entertainment are not that different. People take this sort of erudite approach to art. Like, oh, it's something. No, it, all great art was entertainment. Bach was an entertainment. You know, but music was used for entertainment purposes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, um, you know, yeah, you could be schmaltzy and... and take the, uh, cheap, uh, the cheap route and just, you know, set your hair on fire and do somersaults, and that'll get attention. <laughs> but um, you, you have to be true to yourself. The way, the way you do one thing is often the way you do many things. Well said. Well said. I like that. 
I am Bruce Wozniak, and joining me today in the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from New York City is multi-instrumentalist, producer, recording artist Nelson Montana. Visit his official website at www.nelsonmontana.com. You can also find him on YouTube, as he alluded to a little earlier, and you can also find him on SoundCloud, for those of you listening to Now Hear This Entertainment on that platform, and you can purchase his music on cdbaby.com. Be sure that you're also checking out www.nowhearthis.biz, that's H-E-A-R, and sign up for the e-newsletter there and subscribe to this podcast and tell others about it too. Subscribing is free and it makes it so easy to get the show every week. It will just download automatically when a new episode comes out so you don't have to go looking for it. If you're a new listener to the show, thank you very much and please do check out some of the prior episodes of Now Hear This Entertainment. Wow, we are at... Episode 72 today. I've had a lot of great guests along the way. Go ahead and use the social media buttons on nowhearthis.biz to like the Now Hear This page on Facebook and or become a Twitter follower. Uh, Nelson, I mentioned YouTube in there. Wow, you have over 250 music videos on your YouTube channel. Let's talk about that because obviously so many artists are using it to get in front of all the eyeballs that are on YouTube. And, and I'm certainly not talking about artists like Katy Perry, Kelly Clarkson, Luke Bryan, people like that. Um, well, obviously it is a way to uh, get to a lot of people. It's, it's funny. Sometimes I think that um, the accessibility of so much music on YouTube has made it somewhat less special mm. because I, mean, I remember as a kid, you know, you would, um, scour the streets of the East Village looking for that one record that was out of print in some dusty <laughs> bin in the back of the room. And, and it really meant something. And now it's great that it's available. But uh, I think that uh, younger people don't realize that because they have such a glut of availability, mm-hmm. it may not seem quite as uh, special. But uh, the purpose of YouTube is, um, I, I think it's different for different artists. So for somebody like Katy Perry, obviously, you know, it, it has... Uh, one purpose, but there's also a community of artists who are extraordinarily talented, who are putting their work up on YouTube because it's um, it's an arena. It's it's a way to get their music heard. Exactly. And uh, yeah, and and build up their um, their audience. And it doesn't produce a, a whole lot of money, but um, again, as an artist, you want to you know chronicle your work and you want people to hear it. And YouTube is a wonderful opportunity to do that. Um, it does come with some problems. It's funny, the, the, the last video I did is, um, do you remember the, uh, the Prince song, uh, When Doves Cry? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, well, that was a hit song that, um, there was no bass on that song. Really? So just, yeah, it's sort of interesting. It's probably the only hit song with drums that doesn't have bass. So I decided to do a version where all the parts were played on the bass. <laughs> and um, that video, it started to go viral. It, within a couple of days, it had over 3,000 hits, and that's unheard wow. of. Yeah, I mean, you, I've had things up for years where you get, you know, 40 hits or something. Yeah, I was going to say 300 instead of 3,000. Yeah, a few hundred <laughs> if you're lucky. A few hit more than others if somebody uh, shares it and, and it clicks. But obviously, this was just taking off, and I just got a notice from Prince's People. Uh-oh. That, yeah, he had it taken down. Wow. Um, and I understand that. I understand, understand artists not wanting their music to be available for free. I get that. But it wasn't his recording. That's right. It's, it was my interpretation. So I'm fighting that. But I think it'd be kind of awesome if, if Prince sued me. 
(laughs) (laughs) That would be interesting. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Well, I wonder when you talked about that the novelty kind of wears off. I like the the analogy to the old record that that you'd scour the streets and eventually find, and now you go, well, you should see my video on YouTube. Well, guess what? I have a video on YouTube also. I I wonder, do you feel the same way about iTunes that people kind of puff their chest out and say, well, my new album is on iTunes? Like, well, guess what? It's really not that difficult to get your new album on iTunes. That's it. It really doesn't mean anything. At one point with the record industry, and that's another topic altogether, (laughs) but um, if you had a record deal, um, it meant something. For, for better or worse, the, um, the record company, um, it was a gauge. They decided what they, to a degree, built it out really bad. Let's put it that way. Sure. And, um, and they were on the lookout for the really good. So if you had a record deal, it meant something. You know, you, that, that showed that you, you reached a certain level. But since everybody can record their own CD, everybody can get on YouTube, it doesn't really mean as much. You know, it's not even like a little independent record company. Um, yeah, who hasn't got their own website? Who hasn't got their own... Well, yeah, nowadays, <laughs> nowadays artists have their own publishing. They have their own record label. I mean, I, my middle name is Raymond, so, I mean, I could I could release an album on BRW Records, you know, under, mm-hmm. under BRW Publishing, and it's like, well, that doesn't mean anything. It's just you doing it all yourself, Bruce. You know, so what? It, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, it's like, you know, in Nashville, they always say that it starts with the song. So you can have all the videos on YouTube. You could have all these songs on iTunes. But at the end of the day, it's 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 fundamentals. It's as, it's as common sense as if the music's no good, then who cares that it's well, on well, YouTube that's or, or true, iTunes? That's absolutely true. But um, it's... Um, it's a subjective thing. I mean, who's to say a, a, a song is good? I could think something is junk, but if you, you can't argue with success and you can't defend failure. <laughs> so, yeah, if I think something is junk but it sold 10 million copies, well, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I could say this is the greatest piece of music that ever happened, but if, if nobody's responding to it. And um, the one thing that's still the same is that you have to, the song has to get out there. Right, right. That is still controlled by the industry that, Two percent, if you will, of, of the people who decide what does get out there. Um, very few people really become a success from YouTube, and it's usually because they have a certain celebrity uh, marketability. Right. Um, so I, I'm not. Sure. No, nobody knows. I've spoken to so many people, but nobody knows where this is going. I think maybe at some point, YouTube or some other outside agency will come along and sort of decipher what on YouTube is good in particular categories. In other words, if people are making their own whatever folk music albums, having somebody come in and decide, these are the good ones, these are the okay ones, and these are kind of the junk ones. And uh, maybe that will get the talent to move a little further up and clear the field a bit. Um, I don't know. Nobody really knows. the, The record industry doesn't know. It's, uh, it's a little bit of a panicky time for everyone. Do you, do you, well, that's what they, yeah. do, do you feel, do you know, is, is anyone making any money off of YouTube? I mean, I know you can monetize your videos and, and it's, you know, pennies, but uh, do, do you feel that that's working for, for any independent artists or, or is that just YouTube's way of making people feel like you're, you're getting something out of it? Yeah, I, I, I think if you want to um, use YouTube to make money, it's not the way to go. Right. Uh, I, I think it's more of a little community of artists, um, and um, 
a quick story. This, this is something that happened to me many, many years ago. I did a, uh, an instructional video. This is when VHSs were in, <laughs> uh, where I played classical etudes on the bass. And I sold that from classified ads and magazines. I know I'm really dating myself here. It's so archaic. Um, Imagine that. Had, you had to go to the post office. Really? <laughs> um, but I, I got contacted by this one, uh, this one fella, and he was like, oh, I really like what you're doing. I enjoyed the video and this and that. And he, he sent me a little cassette. He goes, oh, you know, I play. I'm just an amateur. But, you know, here's some of my stuff. And um, he was fantastic. Just a fantastic player. And I contacted him. I said, you know, you're a great player. What are you doing? He's like, oh, you know, I play at company picnics and you know, for my family. I play at the church. Yeah, family reunions. In a, in a way, it's, 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 he was really a pure artist. He wasn't thinking about hitting the big time or making millions of dollars. He was just a talented guy. And uh, you, have to, you have to humble yourself. Um, I tell us, I studied with Elvin Jones. He's one of the great jazz drummers of all times. He told a story of when he was uh, playing with John Coltrane and it was New Year's Eve and they didn't have a gig. John Coltrane Quartet wow. on New Year's Eve. Wow. Gig. So... That tells me to, that no one could afford them. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that was it. I think that it just was nothing available. They weren't, um, you know, they weren't uh, a major top 40 act. They were a jazz act. And uh, so what happened was uh, John Coltrane went back to his room with a bottle of scotch and Elvin just heard him practicing all night long. And the next morning he knocked on Coltrane's door and it was open and he, he walked into the room and Coltrane was on the bed, still in his suit. The bottle was half empty and the horn was in his mouth. Wow. Wow. And, and when he woke him up, Coltrane sat at the edge of the bed and just started practicing. <laughs> So I tell that story to people like, next time you're complaining <laughs> that this gig doesn't pay enough, yeah, here's one of the all-time greats. Yeah, yeah. He did what he had to do, or what he wanted it to do. Well, with the story that you were telling about the guy that ordered your video and then sent you a cassette, I was kind of sitting here waiting for you to say, and that guy ended up being... It's like uh, <laughs> no, that guy is still. <laughs> well, two two weeks ago, uh, Tim Halperin was on the show and uh, started telling a, a neat story um, that ended up resulting in in one of those types of finishes. And that guy was Ben Folds. And then he told a story, blah 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 blah, and he finished that. And he said, and that guy was John Mayer. And when you hear what these stories were, you go, oh my gosh, it's crazy about tracing people back to when they were sort of, I don't want to say nobody, but you know, tracing them back to when they. We're not who they are now, and, and and that's what I was waiting for with your with your. <laughs> well, someone guy. like John Mayer, I, I I really get it. I understand. Again, there's a perfect example of somebody who really has the package in terms of marketability. Um, he's young. He's a very good guitar player. He's young. He's good looking. Nice voice. He had songs that reached a certain um, audience, and I think somebody along the way saw it and and caught it and exploited it. Uh, I guess I'm just saying that there are a lot of people like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that doesn't make them any less talented or any less valid. It's just, it's a little bit of luck of the draw. It's just the way, um, it's the way the industry goes. The problem with that is, <laughs> I've heard a lot of musicians, artists, actors, whatever, complain that, oh, it's all about context, it's all who you know. And I would be thinking like, well, yeah, but you also suck. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. uh, it isn't all that. <laughs> if you knew the right people, the right people would tell you that you they suck instead of me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so again, as, as I said before, you can't really defend failure, but um, I, I think the key is to, to stay true to yourself. And success seems to come sometimes just from left field. You try and try one way to you do all of this is. Uh, for the audience, Bruce and I met at a publicity summit and we were talking about promoting oneself. And, uh, yeah, there are so many people that try all these ways to get attention and then something completely unrelated becomes uh, the opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah, so you just never know with that. Well, and, you know, sometimes, and they're few and far between, but sometimes YouTube is that opportunity. Okay, now it's time for Bruce's bonus. This is a segment here on Now Hear This Entertainment where I take off my hat as podcast host and put on my hat as president of Now Hear This Incorporated, giving a helpful tip for the listeners that are musicians, singers, songwriters, entertainers who are out there trying hard to make a go of it. Today's bonus is know who you're pitching to. If you're submitting your music and or contacting someone as a potential guest for their show, be sure about what it is first. Someone wanting to be on Now Hear This Entertainment wrote to me and said in his email, quote, let me know if you'd like to spin us on your station, end quote. It shows a complete lack of preparation and genuineness, so I neither followed his link nor wrote him back. Putting the time into knowing who you're writing to and what their platform is will put you in a much better position of having your voice and hopefully your music heard. And that is today's Bruce's Bonus. Are you digging the Bruce's Bonus segment each week? Listeners, are the tips helping you out, musicians and entertainers who are listening? There's one on every episode. We've even got an ebook for sale at nowhearthis.biz containing the bonus from each of the first 40 episodes. So go there and check that out. You actually have a contrarian view on the pros and cons of promoting oneself using social media. Yeah, I think that um, the main problem with social media is, um, yes, it's a couple of things. You, you can get in touch with a lot of people, but as we said before, so can everyone else. Right. So it winds up being like 100 people in the same room yelling at each other. <laughs> yeah, you all have a chance to be heard, but who's really listening? And I think one of the mistakes that a lot of people make is they figure, okay, I could get in touch with somebody from, uh, yeah, I, I could tweet them, I could email them, I could go on Facebook, I could go on LinkedIn, I could go on all these things. But um, for starters, first of all, maybe the guy just lives next door, knock on his door. <laughs> you know, you, you yeah. don't need all these methods to get in touch with somebody. And secondly, if somebody doesn't want to get in touch with you, getting in touch with them 20 different ways doesn't help. That's true. Yeah, well said. Well said. I, I emailed you. Why didn't you email me back? And this is this is being written in a private Facebook message. <laughs> <laughs> Same reason that I'm not going to answer this private Facebook message. That's why. Um, I, I, again, these are you know a, a, opinion questions, but um, you have written for several magazines. The the number is is more than 300 articles published. I do actually want to bring up a piece that you wrote a few years ago for the Huffington Post called How Lame is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Tell the listeners what, what I'm referring to. Um, yeah, it was a time for the inductions of the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And um, I just think the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, first of all, I think music as a competition is just, just, just very stupid. It's, 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 not a, it's not a sports event. It's art. Um, if you want a museum to commemorate some great artists, that's one thing. But awards just seems incredibly silly. 
And it seems um, especially dumb for rock and roll because rock and roll is sort of a, um, it's always been a, um, essentially an anti-establishment art form. True, true. And so here we are waiting for a bunch of suits to decide whether John Lennon is relevant. <laughs> it's, it's just ridiculous. I mean, if, if you've sold millions of records, you're relevant. You've reached that many people. I don't need a committee to tell me that yeah, Aretha Franklin is important. Um, and also, a lot of these artists aren't even what I would call rock and roll. Great artists. But Aretha Franklin is probably a good example. Magnificent artist. But she's, not, she's not rock and roll. Yeah, so the just... whole thing is just, it's, it's just so false and, and um, phony and anti-rock and roll. So uh, Yeah, I was waiting for you to get to that because... I actually wrote a blog about that when, and this is, mind you, within the last year. Um, so, so you certainly did yours first, <laughs> and, and yours was for the Huffington Post, not for, not for, not for now here. This dot biz, uh, but you know, I, I kind of took the same attitude that, as you said earlier during the show, it is very subjective. I mean, there are there are people who like Weird Al Yankovic, and there are people who say, well, "What is that? The guy's, mm -hmm. you know, doing song parodies," uh, and the same thing. If was he nominated? <laughs> well, no, but my point is that it's the same thing. You know, what's to say that so-and-so qualifies for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he or she? I mean, I, I'm thinking of somebody like Donna Summer, for example, who yeah. was the queen of the disco, oh, of the disco era, not of rock and roll. So what right. is she doing in the Rock and Roll Hall right. of Fame? And so, the, you know, thus, thus the conversation that we're having now, how lame is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Yeah, uh, well, if nothing else, yeah, call it the Music Hall of Fame if you want, which is stupid enough. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah. yeah uh, and but you know, a lot of people seem to like it, and I don't like to um, you know impose my opinions on other people. But but that was my point of view. Some people agreed, some people disagreed. Um, but that's just me. Uh, people have also talked about going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like, ooh, it's got you know Eric Clapton's shirt, or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, that stuff never really meant anything. Um, it, it's the music that counts. That reminds um, me of, of an old Saturday Night Live episode, and we're talking like late 70s, early 80s, when they were doing a spoof that Elvis's coat was going to go on tour. Not Elvis, just his <laughs> coat. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. And that's, what, that's, what, um, that's exactly what you're describing. Let's go, to, let's go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame so that I can see somebody's you know, set list. Yeah, the, yeah right. The shoes they wore at the, you know, at the Fillmore. Yeah, the set list um, that was left laying on the stage at the end of his or her last concert ever. Right. Okay. Right. Um, yeah, that stuff never really meant anything to me. And, um, and I don't see why people get excited if somebody wins. You know, again, what, what does it matter? You know, you know, we already know that uh, two people, David Bowie and I think Johnny Lydon, uh, refused to accept their award at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I really respect that. Mm -hmm. I really, you know, their statement was, was this is stupid. They, they made their mark. They don't need some committee to tell them, here's your trophy. Right, right. But I think a lot of, a lot of groups do it because it's more publicity. It's, it's, it's business. Everything's a business. Well, and, and I always have to go to bat for, for my all-time favorite group, which is Rush. And, and I was actually out there in L.A. When, when they got inducted in. I went to that ceremony. I think they really did it. Largely for their fans, they knew their fans yeah. were the ones that really drove the bus to finally get mm -hmm. them in there, and they thought, you know, we owe them 
going there and, and doing right. the right thing. And lo and behold, they got there and they went, wow, this was actually a bigger deal than we gave it credit for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure it's spectacular to be honored like that. Yeah. Um, everybody wants their work to be acknowledged and on a grand scale like that. It's fantastic. Yeah. And but, the magnitude uh, of the actual event, I think, is is what yeah. kind of took them aback. Like, OK, you know, we'll, we'll go. We'll be professional. We'll do the right thing. We'll, you know, shake hands and kiss babies and play a couple songs. And then all of a sudden <laughs> right. you get there and you go, wow, you people make this big a deal out of it. This is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, if I were in their position, I'd do the exact same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm a, trying to say that, uh, you know, I'm above all that. I just sure, sure. personally aren't particularly interested. And I bring up the point in, um, in the article I wrote, uh, one group that I mentioned was uh, Grand Funk Railroad. Mm. Um, when uh, they played Shea Stadium, they were the second group to ever play Shea Stadium after the Beatles. Wow. And uh, they were this little garage band that was, over the course of a few years just meteoric heights. They just became enormously popular. And the critics hated them, <laughs> hated them. And um, Mark Farner goes out on stage in front of, I don't know how many people, Shea Stadium holds 60,000 people or something. And he holds up his guitar and he says, you see this? The critics say I can't play it, but it got me here. <laughs> and I'm like, that's rock and roll. <laughs> that's rock and roll. Yeah, and, and, and thus, it, it, it just displays the irony of a bunch of suits that want to sit in a room and, and debate the yeah. worthiness. It's like, exactly. I don't even care. I, I'm, I'm against structure. I'm against boardrooms. I'm against, you know, yeah. this is what rock and roll is, and yet you're the one that's governing it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the rock and roll is about talking out against people like you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, you know, it, it happens. You know, I thought it was funny that um, Dylan was honored at the Lincoln Center um, and they were doing his song, you know, the times they are a changing, mm -hmm. you know, and Bill Clinton is there and all these dignitaries. And I'm like, this song is against all you people. Well, it was 50 years ago, <laughs> you know, and now it's just uh, mainstream commerciality. You, know, you use it to sell, you know, Plymouths or something. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But it, that's okay. I understand. I've been around long enough to know that that's just the way I, I don't believe that people necessarily sell outs. I think that comes a point where you have to grab what you can. And if that means using some celebrity status to do it, I do respect Paul McCartney that he never wanted any of his music and he held to it to be used for commercial purposes. Although obviously Yoko Ono owns half of John Lennon's music. <laughs> so you will see potato chip commercials. With Beatles. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if people have that kind of integrity or maybe sort of a hippie mentality. I'm not sure. I maybe it's a little of both. I am Bruce Wozniak, and joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from New York City is multi-instrumentalist, producer, recording artist Nelson Montana. Visit his official website at www.nelsonmontana.com. You can also find him on YouTube, as we were just discussing, over 250 videos on there. And you can find his music on SoundCloud, for those of you listening to Now Hear This Entertainment on that platform. And you can purchase his music on cdbaby.com. Be sure that you are also checking out www.nowhearthis.biz. Pains me to have to still spell it on episode 72, H-E-A-R. And sign up for the e-newsletter there and subscribe to this podcast and tell others about it too. Subscribing is free and it makes it very easy to get the show every week. It downloads automatically each time that a new episode comes out. 
If you are a new listener to the show, thank you ever so much wherever in the U.S. or around the world you're listening. And please do check out some of the prior episodes of Now Hear This Entertainment. As I mentioned before, we are at episode 72 today. We've had a lot, a lot of great guests along the way so far. Go ahead and use the social media buttons on nowhearthis.biz to like the Now Hear This page on Facebook and or become a Twitter follower. Back on episode 66, bluesman Damon Fowler was talking about when he got married and had kids relative to continuing on with his music career uh, while letting his husband and, and father roles influence his touring schedule. Nelson, you are a single dad, though. That's that's certainly another challenge for folks in the arts and entertainment field. Yeah, um, well, I've seen so many people attempt uh, to put their career in front of their responsibilities as a parent. And um, that just didn't sit well with me. I mean, I, there may have been opportunities I could have had had I not had you know, my son. But um, I was almost going to say, is it worth the risk? But I think even if you find success at the exclusion of raising your child um, in the, the most proper way, that in itself is still failure. Um, to me, you know, all the things I've done, uh, my son is my best accomplishment. Mm, very nice. I, I really feel strongly about that. It's awesome. And, and, um, but I, I, I kind of played it both ways. I knew I couldn't do everything. Uh, I, I couldn't completely devote myself to music, but it, you know, you could be an artist anywhere and you could be, um, you, you it's sort of exclusive, or it's not exclusive to uh, having the big career, the big uh, glamorous career. I knew that I had to work. In my case, I chose to just take work as a musician because this way I could still grow as a player and uh, make money. So I wound up doing what uh, used to be called the minor leagues <laughs> of music. You know, the, uh, the the clubs, the bars, the lounges, the weddings, whatever brought in the money and um, you know, it may have seemed like a disappointment at the time, but it's funny looking back at it. Um, it was really a lot of fun and it was a great growing experience. And I think a lot of young musicians, they don't have that. Those opportunities aren't available anymore. I mean, I remember a time I would pull up to a club on a Wednesday night and there'd be a line out the door for people to get in. And when do you see that for a club that has a live band these days? Yeah. It's just, yeah. You know, they may go back to music being a little less special, and of course, DJs and everything else has influenced it. But um, yeah, I just thought that uh, responsibility comes first, and uh, I wasn't going to use that as an excuse. Now, if somebody wants to quit music and uh, just to raise their children, I respect that as well. Sure, sure. You know, yeah, but the I, people who say, oh, well, there goes my music career, you're here to say, well, not necessarily, because look, at you were still able to keep your hand in it, still able to bring mm -hmm. some money in to help raise your son, and yeah. you, you know, kind of got the best of both worlds, so to speak, while while still kind of taking that stand that, look, you know, I'm, I'm still doing music, but I'm not going all in with music. My, my son comes before all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, and if, if a big break came along where that meant you know millions of dollars, and I felt I could have a better life for my son in that regard, I probably would have taken it. But um, you know what? It really worked out just fine. Um, he grew up feeling that he, he didn't. He got everything he needed. He didn't get everything he wanted, and I think it's probably the best blend. Mm. And uh, it's funny. I was talking to a friend recently. He said he did uh, his whole uh, 
His whole life, he wanted to be a session musician. Huh. He's a guitar player, and he finally got this big break. He was playing this big session for, I forget what the artist was. And he shows up, and there is another guitar player on the session. And he's like, okay, there's two guitar players. And he asked the guy, have you seen the charts? And the guy showed him. The guy read it. He was a wonderful, wonderful guitar player. And my friend was a little intimidated. Because this guy was just so good. And uh, when it came time to record, the guy puts down the guitar and picks up the trumpet. Wow. He was actually the trumpet player. And he was telling him how he was getting out of the business. <laughs> because there was no money to be made. You know, he's a new father. And uh, it was a very sobering sort of smack in the face to my friend because he was somebody who was you know, extraordinarily talented and would probably remain talented his whole life, but it just didn't suit him. The lifestyle didn't suit him. And people have to make that choice. But, but yeah, I agree. I think some people use it as an excuse. Well, if another – I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I was going to say I think if you really want to do it, you find a way. Another aspect that I think – musicians, everyday musicians have to deal with. Uh, and and, and we, we, we try to talk about this from time to time. Uh, Dominic Pages has been on the show twice, um, and at least on, I want to say, episode eight, talked about this. But more recently on episode 67 with uh, Samantha Lee, who, by the way, speaking of Paul McCartney, uh, she tells the story of how uh, about a month ago she was uh, part of that band where the video went viral, where they were performing at Paul McCartney's stepson's graduation party and he jumped uh, up and, and did yeah. uh, some songs with them but she was talking on there about uh, about vocal health um which you know we we probably need to spend a little bit more time talking about in the show but uh, health and longevity are, are certainly important too for an artist that is in this for the long haul whether whether they're a parent or not and in fact uh you've even done a bodybuilding competition just just talk about that whole area as it relates to musicians um, uh, health and longevity well, um, as far as the, the health aspect and the bodybuilding, it's, it's funny. That is an area that uh, I was just interested in as a kid. I was just one of these scrawny little kids, <laughs> you know, that wanted to. Um, and I think I also like the artistic element of it. It's just mm. the, sort of the beauty factor. The sculpting. And, yeah, yeah. You know, looking like a god, that type of thing. And um, I, I, I didn't really have the genetics to be a, a professional, but I, I kind of dabbled with it. And then once I started writing, I started writing some articles that became accepted. And suddenly I'm known in the bodybuilding community, the bodybuilding world. And again, that's one of those sort of out of left field things. It was never a career I pursued. But uh, it became something that became a career. But um, uh, yeah, I'm a big believer in that um, we're really on the edge. We're sort of, this generation is sort of the pioneers of, of people who really have the opportunity. I'm not going to say to live another 50 years longer. I, I think that may be um, a stretch, and I think that uh, lifespan may be sort of predetermined, but I think people can certainly, certainly remain youthful longer. And um, I believe that, and I live that. And in terms of being a performer, it's an absolute necessity, just in terms of remaining vital, not sounding old, and frankly, not looking old. Right. You know, you want to go on. If, you, if people are coming to see you perform, they, they want to see a fresh face. They don't want to see somebody looking tired. They want to see somebody who's enthusiastic. And, um, you know, I, I don't like being – I speak to people sometimes. They're like, oh, I feel exactly like I did when I was 25. I'm like, well, you don't look it. <laughs> <laughs> you, know? you may think you do. Um, but uh, 
aging gracefully isn't about denying it. I think it's about accepting some things and fighting other things tooth and nail. And I think that, and I'm not the most strict person when it comes to diet, but, um, you know, eating right and exercise, I think is the biggest factor unquestionably. And, uh, I, I believe that and I lived it and I, and I, it feels working for me. Well, and if you get back to that guy who is playing, uh, at, at a wedding one weekend and a corporate event the next weekend, and then he's playing at a club the next weekend, he's probably the guy that's probably still hauling a lot of his own gear around. Yep. So if yep. you're happy doing that and you say, you know what, I can sustain this, I can, I, I enjoy it, so I'm going to sustain this as long as I can, well, you better keep yourself in, in shape because hauling that gear around is going to wear you out. And then, as you said, when you go up on stage, people are going to look and go, wow, has this guy been up since 2 o'clock in the morning or, or what? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you can't look. We all uh, we all had our fun in our younger years, but uh, yeah, you can't keep that up. You have to. You have one machine for you the rest of your life, and you better take care of it. <laughs> and um, yeah, now <laughs> the other side of that is: Would Jimi Hendrix have been Jimi Hendrix if he was a teetotaling, yoga practicing <laughs> you know, vegetarian? Probably not. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, you can go. Through, well, I was gonna say you could get away with that when you're young. Obviously, you didn't get away with it. Even when you're young, you could uh, do yourself in. What about the the creative process? Uh, we haven't really talked about that so far. What about the creative process and kind of how others can find inspiration? We, we we touched a little bit on inspiration at the beginning of the show when we were talking about instrumentals. Just just give some listener give the listeners some insight that way, if you would. Yeah, I, I think that uh, the. The best advice I could give in terms of the creative process is to not – people tend to quell it. They squash it by thinking too much. Um, if you watch a child, it's funny. The, um, people say you can't learn an instrument later in life, that you have to start very young. And the reason for that is it's actually not true. Somebody 30 years old will learn at a much more accelerated rate than somebody 10. Mm. The difference is the 30-year-old will know that he sounds lousy. <laughs> the 10-year-old won't. 10-year-old is just having fun. And the 10-year-old's parents won't tell him that he sounds lousy. Right. <laughs> right. So he just keeps going. And that, in a sense, is, is the early stage of the creative process. You're just having fun. Uh. And I think that's what you have to do. People try too hard. I know a lot of very good musicians. They're not very good songwriters. It's, it's, and I've known people who weren't particularly good musicians who are very good songwriters. Sure. They're, they're almost different skills. Sure. So um, the key is to just stay with it. And you have to question. As an artist, you have to always refine and, and make things better. But I think I, I see it so many amateur songwriters and, and, and actors and writers is they're trying so hard to be relevant. Mm. And um, I take the opposite approach. I take the approach of just let something come naturally. Let it be a very, very simple idea. I can, uh, you can come with a title. I'll, I'll give you an example. I'm not sure if you can hear it. You can come with a, a title. And um, I don't know, can you think of a title of the song? Just pick something, make something up. And um, I don't know, going to the corner. Okay, so it's like. Uh, Going to the corner. That's a melody. You know, and that was just nonsense. I just went to the yeah, piano yeah. with random notes. But um, if I were to construct that and put a verse around that and the, the bridge and record it and get a great drum sound, a good bass line, a good guitar sound, suddenly you have a song. Now, once you get that done, 
you can fine tune and put all the little clever diddly bops in there, so to speak. Sure. But um, the basis of it is really simple. And I think that's where people get hung up. It's almost like when you um, ama- um, amaze, it's easier if you start at the end. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 sure. Start at the end, you know where it's going. And you can find your way through. But if you start at the beginning, you keep on hitting all these these walls. And I think that's the problem. People start out wanting it to be this great masterpiece when just start out with a very just a germ of an idea. And then let your own creativity take over. And it will. Yeah, because if you're picking up a guitar for the first time in your life and you're saying, I want to sound just like Alex Lifeson, well, <laughs> you well, right. set the bar so darn high that you know you're you're not even gonna give yourself a chance to you know, to learn C, D, and G. Exactly. Yeah, I, I want to write a song just like Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> no. Write what comes to you. And you and you never know. That's that's the wonderful thing about the, the muse. You never know what the muse is in the mood for. And uh, just let it come to you. By the way, <laughs> you, you slid over and played the piano. It, it, it dawned on me that uh, I haven't given you an opportunity. Can, can you just quickly recite... Uh, I said that you play 11 instruments. Can, can you yes. just tell the listeners what those 11 are? Um, sure. Uh, <laughs> I don't mean yeah. to put you on the spot, but I, um, I mean, that's, that to me, that's that's truly unique. And, and I feel that the listeners would probably, because we were talking about bass and drums earlier mm-hmm. on, and so all of a sudden to have you slide over and play the piano, people probably thought, wow, where did that come from? <laughs> um. Well, I play, um, yeah, bass, drums, uh, I play some piano. Um, keyboards are really different from piano. When I, I do a lot of orchestration mm-hmm. uh, with uh, MIDI and synth sounds, and it's a very completely different approach to piano. Uh, electric guitar and acoustic guitar are also two completely different things. Sure. Um, I also play the upright bass, the acoustic wow. stand-up bass. Wow. Um, I play fretless bass, which I'm not sure would, is all that different from electric, but there are a lot of electric players who can't play fretless, so I consider that another instrument. Uh, voice is an instrument. I play Absolutely. several several percussion instruments, but I don't. I just kind of lump that into one: just drums and percussion. Mm-hmm. And I play a little harmonica. Wow. And what else? Wow. I think that might be it. <laughs> <laughs> That's plenty. That's plenty. Uh, and and here's another fun fact. You and you've touched a couple times throughout the show on on acting. Um, you have you have acted to the extent that you appeared uh, on the daytime dramas All My Children and Guiding Light from 1999 to 2005. Yes, yes. Um, I was just a character actor. I, I wasn't a, a, a main uh, a main player, but um, it was a lot of fun. I uh, I enjoyed the acting process, and I was doing it again for the artistic expression. And again, one of those things that just, it just fell into place. I was in the right place at the right time. I did an absolutely dreadful audition (laughs) (laughs) for all my children. But I think they were just looking for a guy who looked like me or I don't know what. (laughs) And I mean, I've done great auditions where I didn't get hired. So there you go. That one was that one was at five o'clock on a Friday, and they said, "You know what? Fine, just Whatever. go ahead. Have him, have him <laughs> fill this. Have them have right. him fill this out and tell him to be here Monday." <laughs> <laughs> right? We don't want to see anybody. Else. Um, yeah, and um, even though it was, it was sort of grunt work, one might say it. Um, it was a lot of fun, and I did learn, and I wound up um, helping some young acting students. Uh, it's a very similar thing. Acting students they they have their 
Shakespeare chops and they're ready to go and they're ready to kill there and just, you know, uh, act the hell out of a scene. And I'm like, you know what? Spencer Tracy had a great line concerning acting when the whole method thing was coming along and they asked him, you know, what, what's your method of acting? And he said, memorize the lines and don't bump into the furniture. Mm. You know, and in other words, you keep it simple. Yeah. You, you, just, you show up, you hit your mark, and um, it isn't really heavy acting, but um, even a lot of the stars, would uh, they knew that their job was to exactly memorize the lines, get it done, go home and pick up a check. I'm not a big believer in acting as a really high skill. I know there's some actors that want to kill me for saying that. <laughs> I, I think that there are... If you're a decent storyteller, or if, even if you could tell a good lie, you probably could act with very little coaching. You take 10 people off the street, and you know if they, they look the type, one of them would be able to act the part. I really don't think it's all that difficult. As long as they're coachable. Well, yeah. You know, the thing is that, and, and we sort of talked about this with, with things like YouTube and iTunes, that people just... It's the, it's that lure nowadays of of everybody just wants their more than more than their fifteen minutes of fame, and so they hear about doing all these gigs on the weekend, and they say, "See, that's what I'd like to do." But then, but then that's why we have to point out things like, "Yeah, but if you're still hauling your own gear," and then they hear, "Boy, oh boy, this guy does all this stuff, and he's even been on all my children in Guiding Light." Yes, but let let have a conversation with Nelson and have him tell you about uh, a six o'clock a.m. call time on a Monday. You know, coming off of oh, a weekend yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, these, these things aren't, you know, they kind of lose some of the luster that, that people see from, from the outside. Absolutely. Um, as a matter of fact, I started as a drummer. I, um, I played a few instruments, dabbled with a little piano, a little guitar when I was younger. And um, it wasn't until my late 20s, which is kind of late to start. I just, I fell in love with the bass. And I would do a gig on drums and get home at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I'd practice the bass. Wow. I practiced the bass wow. for you know four or five hours until the sun came up. Wow! Um, it, it, you have to do it. Um, it's something you have to, and and I wanted to do it. it, it was it glamorous? No, there were times I remember looking at myself. Um, I had one of these glossy uh, lacquer cabinets that were popular in the eighties. <laughs> I was looking at myself <laughs> at five o'clock in the morning. I looked like hell. Like, what am I doing? There's 8 billion great bass players. Why am I doing this? And I just said, no, I'm going to keep doing this because if I keep doing it, I'm going to get better. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but it's, it's not glamorous. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun when you're up there. Look, there's nothing like being on stage in front of a thousand people who are dancing and cheering or just watching the band. Sure. It's wonderful. But uh, that's a very, very small part of your life. The rest is a lot of work, and like I said, a lot of the unglamorous stuff. It's breaking the stuff down and carrying it downstairs and through kitchens. Yep, yep. And uh, it, it's a job. Yeah, and and getting home at two in the morning, like you said. Oh yeah, yeah. Long drives. <laughs> it's it's not so easy. <laughs> uh, we're going to close today with a song of yours called "I Can't Let You Go." Uh, mm-hmm. Before we let you go, just tell the mm-hmm. listeners about this song. Um. Well, this is a song, um, I, I think all song, all writing in general, I have a rule about writing, whether it's an article or a lyric, in that um, why does the listener care? I think the mistake that a lot of people make is they write so personally that it's almost like listening to somebody's, watching somebody's whole movies. 
you have to write a song that relates to people. And this is a song that was partly based on what I was feeling, but something that I think a lot of people could relate to. And that um, you get to a point after the breakup of a relationship where you feel like enough time has passed where you should be over it, but you just can't get over it. Very good. And, you know, so that, and that's uh, essentially what the song is about. Great. Well, Nelson, thanks so much. Really enjoyed it. I appreciate you being on the show today. Well, thank you for having me, Bruce. It's a lot of fun. That will do it for this week's edition of Now Hear This Entertainment. My sincere thanks to multi-instrumentalist, producer, recording artist, Nelson Montana. Remember to check out his website at www.nelsonmontana.com. Subscribe to his YouTube channel as well and watch and like the videos on there. Just like this show is, uh, Nelson's music is available on SoundCloud, and you can purchase his CDs through cdbaby.com. On the info page of his website, you can find his contact information for those interested in maybe having him play on your next recording or even to have him produce or record your next single or EP or CD. Plus, of course, he offers bass instruction and voice lessons, too. Don't forget to visit www.nowhearthis.biz and sign up for the email newsletter there by simply putting in your email address. And, of course, please do subscribe to this podcast and tell your friends about it. Give us a nice review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, too. Maybe even a five-star rating. That would really help the show a lot. If you are listening on SoundCloud, remember that you can like and share episodes there, and you can also follow on SoundCloud, which is just like subscribing. Let's get your feedback on the show, too. Post your comments or questions on the Now Hear This Facebook page. There are links to it and to Twitter, and even the Now Hear This official YouTube channel on nowhearthis.biz, or send us an email. The email address is on the contact page of nowhearthis.biz. We have been recording this show at the great facilities at Crystal Blue Sound Studios near Tampa, Florida. Check them out online on their great new website at www.cbpro.net. That's CB as in Crystal Blue. Thanks for listening. We'll send you out today with another song from Nelson Montana. This is the one he just talked about. It's called I Can't Let You Go.